Morning. It's great to see everyone uh, this morning. <laughs> a little, little bright there. Uh, if you open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, and we will take a look at a text that begins with verse 19 of Hebrews 10. <clears throat> By the way, for those of you who are uh, members here had the uh, pleasure of seeing the Waukeses for about an hour in St. Louis uh, on Thursday, uh, doing some lessons up there. It was so nice to see them. Didn't get to see the twins. They were sleeping, and we didn't dare wake them. <laughs> With, in order to avoid getting a curse forever from the Waukeses, so, but uh, very nice, very nice to see them, and they send their greetings. In Hebrews 10, uh, there is a passage in verse 24 uh, that is part of, of course, a larger context here that we're going to talk about. But just these simple words let us stir up to one another to love and good works. This particular text has been, over the years, abused a lot. Uh, in the sense that it has been used very much the way Jesus in Matthew 23 and verse 23 said to the scribes and Pharisees, you tithe mint and dill and anise and cumin and neglect the weightier matters of the law, uh, mercy and justice and faithfulness. And, Jesus, and he went on to say, these you ought to have done and not left the other undone. Jesus certainly was not suggesting that it was wrong for them to uh, tithe the mint and the dill and the anise and the cumin. But he says you concentrate on that and you avoid the bigger issue of love and faithfulness and justice. And I think that has been done with this particular text a lot. In verse 25 finishes the sentence of stir up one another to love and good works not forsaking of our, our assembly together. Now, I grew up learning verse 25 really, really well. And that was, that was uh, mentioned uh, numerous times. I didn't know a thing about verses 19 through 24, which leads up, of course, to that statement. For the last uh, couple of weeks, uh, two weeks ago, I talked about biblical togetherness. And last week, Chip did a marvelous lesson on what it means to be a member, and the question has come up, and thematically for this year, and questions that we have received in our question box, of would you talk more about what love really is? And so this morning, we're going to look at just this little sentence here, what it means to stir one another up to love and good works, because that's the meat of what we are supposed to be doing, not just check a box and come to a particular assembly or to any other kind of assembly that might uh, just say, well, we were there. So let's talk a little bit about this. First, just very simply, in the ESV, we see those words stir up. In the NIV, uh, it is translated spur. In the American Standard Version, Christian Standard Bible, and the New Standard Bible, it's translated provoke. Uh, in the New American Standard Bible, it's translated encourage. 
And some of the older versions use the word stimulate. We know from the Greek language here that this is a word that is, that is proactive. It, it is saying we, we, you need to, to get in each other's kitchen, so to speak, and, and start urging each other to do better, to grow more. Now, of course, the broader picture in the book of Hebrews is that this was a critical part of keeping each other, these Christians, from beginning to slip. And the Hebrew writer constantly talks about how easy it is to just start slipping and drifting and, and falling back. And just about everyone here, if not everyone here, if I, if I said to you, let's, uh, let's just uh, go around the room and, and take a poll here, and we ask this question over and again, uh, are you going to fall away from Christ? Uh, I, I would really be shocked if somebody said, yeah, probably. <laughs> Working on it right now. <laughs> Trying to go in that direction. I, I'm really going down that fall away path. Well, you probably wouldn't do that. But in, when you read Hebrews over and over again, the Hebrew writer says, you're crazy if you think you got this. The, you have to put in a tremendous amount of effort and an effort that is a one another effort if you think you're going to not start slipping slipping is easy to do because it's unnoticeable and it's so it is one of those things that he reasons then that he has for us coming together and us being together on a really regular regular basis so this morning let's examine a little more carefully why we are to stir one another up to love and good works. Why this is, is so important. Uh, I thought it interesting, by the way, last Sunday night, we had a fifth Sunday singing, as we often do, and uh, we just plain got carried away and kept singing and kept singing and kept singing. And, uh, and, and I don't know that anybody noticed that we got to almost 6.30 because we were just having so much fun encouraging one another through our singing to God. That was such a pleasure, and, and, uh, and a pleasure not to uh, uh, be, be sitting there thinking, you know, I'm done with singing. <laughs> it's time for waffles. And now, it was time for waffles, but it was, it, it's one of those things that getting ourselves into the joy of what it means to serve the Lord is, is, is a critical, uh, critical part of what we need to learn to do uh, as Christians. So let's talk a little bit about this a little bit more. Uh, a found, the foundation for love and good works begins with our thankfulness to God for what He has done for us. Now, Drew has done a great job of talking about that this morning. Uh, even Adam in our Bible class this morning has talked about these things. But our dedication and how much effort we put into serving God is dependent on how appreciative we are and thankful we are for what He's done for us. It is not determined by, are you going to obey Him or not? Because that that it, it 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 doesn't last <laughs> you can get you can really get into get you know somebody could just preach the a hellfire and brimstone sermon and you can walk out going okay okay i'll do it but it isn't the end goal that god wants he wants us 
to be stirred up to love and good works. But that is a sentence that is, 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 comes after a number of statements beginning, about, beginning back in verse 19. Look at verse 19 of Hebrews 10 and just notice those words. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, some, the older versions, boldness to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Now he has spent uh, ten and a half chapters here emphasizing to us the greatness of what Jesus has done. Do you remember, and I've talked to the congregation here more about this but a long time ago, but do you remember when God said to Moses up on the mountain, uh, Moses, if you'll just... Uh, uh, get away uh, just, just would you just uh, m- move over just a little bit I am going to destroy all of them just just back away watch me just take them out and when I get done with them I'll just raise a new nation up to you I'm fed up remember that and sometimes we read that and go oh yes yeah, sure God you weren't going to do that well you think he's a liar He was absolutely going to do that, but he was absolutely also urging Moses in that moment, I'm giving you an opportunity to stand in the way. And Moses did. And God, from that incident, brings about the picture of the need of a high priest which is spoken about as you get into Hebrews 10. He speaks of Moses and then transitions to Jesus being the needed high priest. And what he says here is, in this particular case, when Jesus died, he gave us confidence to enter a place that no one was ever allowed to enter except the high priest on the Day of Atonement, first offering blood for himself, and in later years even having a rope tied around his waist in case he blew it somehow, and they had to drag him out dead because it was so fearful to walk into the presence of the living God. And Jesus then, dying on the cross, went through tore that veil in half and placed his flesh as the way into that holy place and he said now you can walk boldly into it there is a complete reversal from the garden scene before the sin when god would walk into the garden in the cool of the day and commune with adam and eve and now he says come on in Come on back in. All of your sins are taken care of. You can walk in through that, through this blood of Jesus. We walk in today. We are in the presence. We have gone through the veil, His flesh, and we stand in the presence of the mighty God in the great holy place of heaven. The honor is beyond our our ability to really consume it and realize it. And you will notice the words, since we have. Now this sets that up. He says it twice. Since we have, verse 19. 
And then he says it again in verse 21. Since we have this great high priest over the house of God, since we have these things. You see, he's laying the groundwork of appreciate what God has done. And since he's done this, and since we possess this, here then is what you and I must do. And he begins with those words, let us. And he gives three commands. Let us. And he starts with, let us draw near with hearts sprinkled clean. Now, it would be easy just to stop with, let us draw near. But that's not what he says. Let us draw near with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. That is a direct reference to Exodus chapter 24. When God read the covenant to Israel, He said, here is the covenant. And all of Israel said, all the things that God has said to do, we will do. And Moses said, okay. And he offers an animal. And he takes half of the blood and he pours it out at the foot of the altar. Symbolizing God now touch this blood. We are sharing this blood. Pouring it out the altar. And God touched the blood. And then he took a hyssop. And he dipped it into the rest of the blood. And he told Israel, okay, everybody, start walking by me. Walk by me. And as they're walking by, he dipped it in. He threw the blood on them. And the blood splattered. Do you feel the blood hit you? The blood splattered on their garments. In all the 40 years that they walked, the blood is stained on their garments, reminding them they touch blood with God reminding them that that covenant relationship meant if I violate this covenant, may I die like that animal. And God is saying the same thing. And the Hebrew writer says, you now have the blood of Jesus splattered on your conscience, on your heart to cleanse you from that. Let us then do what? Draw near. All right, now that, that's not draw near by, okay, well, I drew near because I came to church. That is something that's individual with you and has to happen in your quiet time every single day. That has to happen with you drawing near to God in important times of prayer, in important times of of learning about Him and wanting Him and desiring Him. Learning your Bible so you desire Him. Okay, so ask yourself that question. Have I, do I learn about Him so much that every day I desire Him? Adam taught, by the way, one of the ways we stir one another up, Bible class this morning. Adam taught a, teaching a wonderful class. And he pointed out this morning what, where, where Paul said, I desire to depart and be with Christ, but it's far better for me to be with you. For to live is Christ. Would you describe yourself that way? To live is Christ. 
You can't fill that blank in with anything else and be acceptable to God. To live is Christ. Because that is how you draw near. Let us draw near. Why? Because look what he did. And then secondly, let us hold fast. He doesn't waver with his promise, the text says. Hold fast. We cannot have a life of spiritual life that's going up and down with the waves. It has to be pursued with diligence and holding fast and not allowing ourselves to move away from that anchor that he talks about in Hebrews 6.20. The anchor that keeps us anchored to Christ and the hope that we have. Hold fast. Don't let that wave start going. Don't let those other desires enter in. And then thirdly, stir up one another to love and good works. These three things continue to emphasize for us the importance of what we are to do now once we have done individually and had our spiritual life. Now our spiritual life is shared by touching others. But what really does it mean to stir up someone to love? How does that happen? What does it mean to stir up someone to good works? Of all the sermons I've ever heard in my life, or preached in my life, I've never heard a sermon on how you stir one another up to love and good works. Thus, what we're talking about this morning. (laughs) It is about time, is it not? That we talk about what that really means. So let's begin by asking ourselves a couple of questions. Why is this so important? Because the, the, the Hebrew writer turns right after that, and he says in verse 26, For if we go on sinning deliberately, he emphasizes the danger these Hebrew Christians are in because they've allowed themselves to slip to, uh, to a point where it is easy for them to sin. It's easy to pursue it and get into it. One sin leads leads to another. Callousness builds up. You get to the point where you do not feel the conscience like you felt before. And pretty soon, the neglect is taking place, which is exactly what the writer said back in Hebrews 2 and verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Sometimes we look on go on sinning willfully as I'm doing this immoral thing or that. Neglect. I'm good at neglect. (laughs) How's you doing with neglect? I want to neglect the things I'm not interested in doing right now. Neglect. I'm neglecting things when I'm busy about uh, things that aren't important, just urgent things. It's easy to neglect. So consider carefully. He says, if you go on doing this, verse 29, you will have trampled underfoot. And then he uses the word, you will profane the blood of the covenant. And then he uses the word, you will outrage the spirit of life. As I read that, I I just, I I feel the, the emotion of God that we saw on Mount Sinai when Israel was breaking their idols. And here's the response. If they died without mercy under the basis of two or three witnesses, he says in verse 28, how much worse will it be for those who who go on to do these other things? 
it is, it is incredibly important to, to see th this. So two questions we should ask ourselves very quickly. Do I intentionally meet for worship to connect and stimulate others to love and serve God better? Or is there some other reason? Am I thinking Saturday when I'm thinking about worshiping Sunday? Or am I thinking Wednesday when I'm thinking about being with Christians Wednesday night? Or whatever ever time, whether it's in this building or not, am I thinking in terms of how can I connect and urge and stimulate someone, some other brother or sister to love and good works? Can I, how can I encourage them to be a better servant of God? Does that cross our minds? You see, our churched world has ruined the idea of gathering. It's just been ruined because it is treated as a, an audience type of situation where someone speaks and others listen and, and there is a service done and those sorts of things. Are we doing that? Secondly, do I understand that this is a primary purpose of worship? By the way, I should have changed that to three questions. But do I understand this is a primary purpose in our worship. This is a primary purpose. How we worship God happens through how we urge each other to love and good works. That is worship because that is how God is glorified and honored. We miss that. And thirdly, is it my intention to love God with all my heart, soul, and all my mind, and all my strength, and love my neighbor as myself? Now, I'm asking my, I was asking myself this question this last week. And I'm, how many times have you just gone through life and you hear these words, this is the number one commandment, this is the number two commandment. You have to love God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength and all your soul. And you have to love your neighbor as yourself. And I'm thinking to myself, I have no intention of doing that. I want to do 70% of it. <laughs> do I really going to do all? Well, wait a minute. If I do all, what about me? What about the things I want to do? What about my life? What about this? That's the point. It long ago was not your life. He gave you breath, and then he gave you life after you killed it. Do I have an intention of actually loving him that much? If I did, I wouldn't have to worry about, let me see, should I obey that command or not? <laughs> Let me see, should I go that far or not? Let me see, should I sacrifice that much of myself or not? I'm not going to worry about those questions. There's the deal. Jesus called us to radical love, did he not? That is radical. Far beyond anything would, anybody would dream of in this world. It is absolutely radical. Now, that is the reason 
God made a local church. To get us to that point of radical love, to get us to that point where we could love God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and our strength and actually love our neighbor as ourselves, whether, whether in a Christian or not a Christian, that we would love them that much. The local church is what he formed in order to bring us to that particular part. I'm interested in what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 28, after listing all the things he went through as far as suffering. And he says, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. You know, you and I walk around all the time. We're like, yeah, man, I'm really concerned about the church over in here and over in there. And I'm thinking about them and I know about and I'm boy, I'm really concerned. I hope they're doing well. Let's pray for them. I'm concerned about the church in Brooklyn. I'm concerned about the church over here in Pennsylvania. I'm con- boy, I, I know a lot of these churches and I need to pray more for them. But I, I'm, I'm, I'm just anxious about it. Uh, probably not. Probably not. You know what Paul was concerned about? He's thinking about every single Christian, every single body that is there to glorify God, and he's concerned that there's slippage, there's concern of how they're going to handle it and what they're going to do. His love for that is so strong because he knows the importance of that local body. He was part of getting it going in all of these different places. There's a phrase, there's a brief proverb in chapter 27, 17. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. We've read that. I, I remember when I was young, Christians that read that teacher. Yeah, iron sharpens iron. We sharpen, let's go lift weights together, you know. <laughs> we'll lift higher. Come on, push harder. Ah, there we go. Love it. Love it. Hey, take a look at your body now, man. That's great. We're sharpening each other. Well, okay, nice. But when I go out and take the mower blade off my mower and I take a grinder and I start sharpening that blade, both the grinder and the blade loses something in order for it to get sharp. And for us to sharpen one another takes that. Think about this this verse Paul gives the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Highlighted words. Agree, no divisions, united, same mind, same judgment. What do you think had to happen with the Corinthians in order to accomplish that with as divided as they were? Take a wild guess. <laughs> Woo! How many times would they have had to talk out problems? How many apologies would have had to been given? How many times would someone have to forgive another for what had the hurts that had been done? How many times that they confess wrongs to one another? How many times did they have to walk up as a group to one who was a false teacher in the group and said, enough, there's the door. I don't care how nice you are. You persist in this teaching and you're destroying this place. Get out. 
How strong would that have had to been be done by these Christians to make sure they were doing what God asked them to do? And what it took was, as iron sharpened iron, each one had to lose part of themselves. And that's the way love is developed. And that's the way growth is developed. Each one loses a part of themselves. And when it doesn't work, it doesn't work because a Christian says, I'm not losing anything from myself. And then it can't happen. When we consider these things, it is important always to realize, as was read in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 through 10, for our uh, lesson this morning, the wolf dwelling with the lamb, (laughs) the bear and and the kid together, and the young lion that eats straw and doesn't attack. In the prophecy, the Messiah was saying, here's what I'm going to create. I'm going to create a brotherhood. I'm going to create a group of of people who are so much like me that when they were in the world, they were wolves and bears and lions and serpents. And when they come together, They won't hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. The wolves will no longer be predatory. There's to be no hurt here. There's to be no hurt, whether in a local or universal body, there is to be no hurt. There's to be no destruction. In all of this, we bring ourselves together in order to create a body in which everyone is not trying to hurt anybody else, but urging and stirring one another up to love and good works. I'll never forget baptizing, teaching and baptizing an older man, 80 years old, who was the father of one of our members, and he said, Teaching my father is going to be probably the biggest impossibility ever. He has always been a mean, angry guy. Just brace yourself. (laughs) But Jesus Christ softened his heart. And I watched that man for the rest of his life and never saw anybody more gentle and precious and caring as you could ever imagine. Because that's what Jesus does. He teaches us how to give up ourselves for other people because of what he did for us. This requires, folks, it requires us to act in ways that's not natural to us. That's not, the natural way is to be the wolf. <laughs> The natural way is to be the lion in certain circumstances. We have to give up what's natural to us and go against nature. 
It is so important. So God's design here, it is so similar in the church as to the design of marriage. And we saw that and see that, you know this passage, Ephesians 5, 22 through 34, where he talks about husbands loving your wives and hus- I mean, husbands loving your wives, wives being submissive and husbands nourishing and cherishing and laying down his life. And he gives all those things. And he says, but I'm not talking specifically about marriage. I'm talking about your relationship with Christ. But in so doing, he He's also talking about how we as a church are the bride. And that we as a church come into a a picture of His bride adorned in splendor. Well, then that has to include us as well. You know, the reason divorce and division is sin is because it ruins God's purpose to bring us to love. He, he, He can only do it that way. How do you learn to love? Well, you you go uh, up on a mountain and you pretend to be a monk and uh, you sit on a mountaintop your whole life. Now, you're going to learn to love that way, aren't you? God forces us forces us into certain relationships. Marriage is one of them and the church is the other. He pushes us into a relationship that we have no options. I do not have an option to say, forget you guys because I don't like you. You don't have an option to do that with one another. We don't have an option to do that in marriage. It is so difficult. Jesus said in that same text, Paul said, the two shall become one flesh. And Jesus followed up with that, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Has God joined a church together? (laughs) Yeah. Let not man separate what God has joined. Has God joined you together in marriage? Quit using the D word. It is not an option. You are put there to learn to love. If you fail it, how can you step before God when He put it there to cause you to learn to love? It is the end goal. It is the reason the Hebrew writer said, this is where you have to get. This is why you stir one another up to love and good works. It's how it works. And then we can be presented to Christ in splendor, as he says in Ephesians 5 there. So we have to learn like God loves. He's put this there to do that so that we can learn to love in the same way He loves. Church, marriage, children, it isn't intended to be easy. Don't you love it how we talk about it? Ah, it's really hard. (laughs) You get those new kids, it's really hard. I was talking to Franco and and, uh, Megan. He's, woo, we had three and now boom, we prayed for one more and God says, how about two? And here we go. It's hard. 
Megan's got, ah, I'm tired. Yeah, she's got, and, uh, and Bronco's like, where's, which way's the stairs? I don't know. And, and uh, yeah, it's hard. And it's also used to bring us to holiness and sanctification, to bring us to love as God loved. It wasn't meant to be easy. What, are we, what kind of church are we looking for? Well, I want to look for one, you know, where everybody just likes each other all the time and there's never anything wrong and nobody ever argues, you know, and all that. Well, build yourself, get one of those old-timey phone booths and put it in your backyard and meet in it because you won't need a building. You're messing up what God is forcing us to learn to do. How is this not calling us to accountability? How is this stirring up one another not? If I'm slipping, if you see me slipping, and you don't come and talk to me, I'm going to punch you on the day of judgment if God will just give me one last punch. What do you think? We need to have enough love for God, for one another, for the future, for eternity, to be able to do that. Hebrew writer, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He talks about a relationship in which we intentionally determine to help each other uh, to get there. When a church splits, when a marriage splits, or there's a lack of love, God's whole purpose has been defeated. You know, some people... It seems kind of natural to love them. You find some things that go along. But learning to grow that love is entirely different. I'd like you to listen to this. Catherine M. Porter made this observation about a dilemma in marriage for a young bride. And she wrote this. This very contemporary young woman finds herself facing the oldest and ugliest dilemma of marriage. She is dismayed, horrified, full of guilt and forebodings because she is finding out little by little that she is capable of hating her husband whom she loves faithfully. All, 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 uh, all marriages say amen to that. That's right, okay? Don't you, don't you tell me you don't do that. Come on, come on. Uh, she can hate him at times as fiercely and mysteriously, indeed in terribly much the same way as she often hated her parents, her brothers and her sisters, whom she loves when she was a child. And yet she hides those contradictory feelings from him because she goes on to say, above all, she wants him to be absolutely confident that she loves him. And that it is the real truth. And no matter how unreasonable it sounds, no matter how her own feelings betray them both at times, she depends recklessly on his love. Oh, yes. Yes. We must demand of ourselves to love because of God's love without letting our feelings betray us.
Years ago, I used to listen to Dr. Laura Slexinger in California when she'd come on the radio and people would call in and, and there'd be some, it, it happened, I don't know how many times, some, some wimpy wife would call in and, say, and talk about how she couldn't stand her husband and all this. And, and Dr. Laura said, well, this is what you need to do. But you don't understand, I don't feel like it. What do feelings have to do with it, she said. Do what's right. Love. Wow. <laughs> Always struck me. It's amazing. You know, it's just wrong expectations when we get the idea that because our feelings are hurt or because there's problems, that somehow this indicates this marriage is not for me. Or somehow this indicates this church is not for me. Utter silliness. Utter silliness. Lord shaking his head at us. Two final quick passages. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. Humility, gentleness, forbearing one another in love. God is forcing us to come to grips with character issues we have within ourselves and urging us to sacrifice them for the greater good of God and love. And Matthew 25, verse 43 through 40. Remember day of judgment? And those who are righteous. Well, when, when, Lord, when do we see you in need? When do we see you this way? In that you did it to the least of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. We say to ourselves, we're the bride of Christ. And we want to love him and show him how much we love him. And Jesus said, good. When you do it to the least of my brothers, you've done it to me. Don't you act like you love me and not love one another. Radical love. That's all I could think of as I put this together. Our church and marriage relationships call upon us to confront our selfishness and to become selfless. We're going to sing a song. Can we help you? We'd love to help you. Come to Christ. You know what you need to do. Do it now. Get right with the Lord. Whatever it is, together, sand and sand.